This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This, after quite a big hiatus, is closer than Mishpocha. And I'm here, of course, with my dear, dear friend, Rabbi Eitan Ami Kogri. Eitan, not only am I here with you, I guess, through Zoom, but I'm holding my Seyodecha, I'm holding in my hands a great gift. You know, the ultimate present for me is always a book, a Sefer. And I have in my hands, I would call it a Sefer. As much as it's, uh, uh, it's everything here is in English, I feel it has the chashivas of, of, of any sefer, of, of, of Sipuri Gedolim, and that is greatness, portraits of Torah personalities past and present, that was taken from, right, Eitan was taken mostly from, completely really, from articles you wrote for Mishpacha magazine. That's right. I guess it's hitting the, the bookstores from Feldheim and Mosaica Press, which I guess is a special imprint of Feldheim. I'm not exactly sure, but uh, it seems to be that it's the type of thing for the reflective thinking a Jewish individual. And I, before we start, I just want to say that uh, one of the things that's most impressive about this volume, which is not that large, and is the note about the author. Two lines. Uh, Eitan Kobri, a Talmud of the Yeshiva of Staten Island, and Yeshiva Sharatera is a writer and editor living in Bayswater, New York. After so, you know, you look at dust jackets and you see glossy pictures and everything they might have done. Yeah, it's too good, especially since you're not trying to get in the way of the main thing. <laughs> I wonder about myself if I would have that type of, of that, that type of modesty, but I appreciate that. Well, well, put, well put, well put. The, uh, the first and most important rule for a writer is get out of the way. And let the story tell itself. So thank you. Yes. Yeah, but but I think having you know having Eitan Kobri on the cover is going to is going because people don't keep their old mishpachas and you know, especially it is somewhat in a different format. Um, look, I, I've read a third of the book. Some of it I've read in the past in, in the original format. And you know, why don't you talk a little bit about you know other than making money and selling the book, what was governing your your, your process here of collecting these uh, in one spot? Well, you know, I was approached by Mosaica Press, which, by the way, they're the publishers. It's being distributed by Feldheim, but the publisher is Mosaica, which is a relatively new publishing house uh, out of Eretz Yisroel, Rabbi Beit Shemesh, Rabbi Yaakov Haber, and Doron Kornbluth. And they've created, in their you know few short years of existence, quite a track record for themselves as publishers of really thoughtful works, um, by authors both prominent and little known, and they've made a real contribution. And it's uh, they they produce beautiful beautiful looking books, but more importantly, the Mashiyeshbo, uh, really quite quite a diversity of, of books if you look at their at their entire list. But you know enough enough with the promos for my publisher to whom I'm very grateful. But my you know when they did approach me, you know I really felt that this was an opportunity to make a 
a, a different kind of contribution to what is already quite an overcrowded field, which is, you know, the, the that of, of what we call Gedolim books, you know, of, of works, uh, biographical works on, on, on great Jews. And I really felt that a collection of pieces that I uh, that I had uh, published over the course of it's now going back twelve years at Mishpacha would be that kind of contribution because as the blurb which I wrote not my publisher on on the back of the book says which is why I, I have no problem quoting it because uh, it's my words uh, and I write that it's an unusual collection of, of poignant biographical sketches which opens a window onto fresh vistas of Jewish greatness, introducing the reader to fascinating yet lesser-known terms of personalities, and at the same time shedding brilliant new light on some famous ones. So I really felt that maybe even more so than kind of bringing to first light unheralded great leaders of ours, um, you know, people like Rutsvi Hirsch Grudzinski, um, you know, Rutsvi Kalbach, not the singer, but his first cousin, the erstwhile Berlin, a son and grandson of, of great German Jewish rabbanim, people like that. Rabbil Zaks, fascinating, fascinating. Uh, Adam Godel, you know, first in Lakewood and then later in later years in Eretz Israel. In addition to, to to that group, I felt that perhaps even a greater uh, achievement of the book is the way that I've brought to readers' uh, attention people whom they thought they knew everything there was to know about. There were Moshe Feinsteins, there were Yaakov Kamenetskis, there were Vermans, you know, the mainstays of American Torah Jewry over the last, you know, uh, 75 years. And I feel that the reader, you know, uh, goes through those sketches, they will feel rewarded. Really seeing these people in an entirely new light. Oftentimes, by the way, through the medium of having close Talmidim talk about them. So it's not me that's, you know, rehashing well-known biographical facts and even anecdotes, but really Talmidim. And these are, you know, they, they, they had an angle, they had a perspective on, on their, on these, on their, on their great rebellion that, you know, have never appeared in print before. So that was uh, the, the, you know, one technique that I used here. Oh yes, it was definitely. And I think that, you know, we can maybe start even, the Rabbi Yaakov sketch, which, you know, Rabbi Yaakov was such a public person, was a person who so many people knew and so many people relied on. And I don't know how many farm had been written about him. Not very many, actually. I have a book that was put, I think it was printed called Mechitzas Rabbeinu about uh, Rabbi Yaakov, a, a nice book in, in Hebrew that gives you a, a sense of who he is. Yeah, a sense, right. And, and of course, you know, Jonathan Rosenblum, Many years ago, at, at the beginning of his own career in biography, wrote a book which was actually based largely on the notes of Rabbi Yaakov's son, Rabbi Nassim Kamenetsky. It, it wasn't uh, Rosenblum's, you know, really own work, but really an elaboration of those notes. And it, it made quite an impact at the time of its, when it appeared, I recall. But other than that, you know, it's been a very long time since anyone has written about Rabbi Yaakov. And let's talk about that section. What I liked about that, uh, your Rav Yaakov, was, first of all, as you said, you really gave a voice to the Talmudim of Rav Yaakov, the people who were close to him. And, of course, both of the men that you speak about, Rav Belsky, Yolva Sholem, and Rav Lulker, Zolgazun Zayn, 
you are able in you know your style to capture them. It's like I. It's it's really the story of Ethan Cobry meeting them and then hearing what they have to say, and a lot of it is quoting them and really having these disciples come to life. You really have uh, Rav Williger and Rav Belsky in front of you talking, and I think that's part of what you're able to accomplish. Uh, obviously, the toichen of what they're saying is also novel and interesting, especially, I would say, uh, it, it, the part that Ravelsky brought to the table, which was uh, Rabbi Yaakov's toughness, the way that Rabbi Yaakov stood was Ayman Beperitz. He was such a, um, and you mentioned the fact that the you know, the two images of Rabbi Yaakov, uh, the, the one with the the barely discernible smile and the one with the with the large smile, the one that um, you know the you know he flashed his dentures wonderfully. I knew because he was very very because I, I knew that Rabbi Yaakov. Uh, he spent many months in Miami. I was in the yeshiva there for four years, and I spent quite a bit of time around him and trying to get what I could out of him, talking to him and seeing him. But you uh, were able to reveal through Rabbi Belsky. Uh, Shalom, a Rabbi Yaakov that really would not take no for an answer. And not only, in, and what was I so was impressed by it was it was how the Baragola movement uh, that would, in a way, provide education for Russian immigrant children, education in a way that was Alpi Ruach Israel Saba, without condescending but understanding exactly what they needed. And, and cognizant of these specific difficult issues that were there and with a pathway to success. And there was incredibly a, a haznacha, as we say in Hebrew, there was a, uh, a, a, a there was a, like, like an uncaring sense that the rest of the Torah community had for some reason and not recognizing it. And Rabbi Yaakov came there at, 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 at what was it, Eitan? It was, it was at a, was it a Torah Was it some sort of convention or some sort of meeting that he called? And he said that we are, in a way, failing this Shevet B'Yisrael. That, in other words, that we know so much about, uh, I guess, Yemais HaMashiach is, is, is how we're going to be Mekarim and how we're going to bring back the people who, have, who are the Nidochim, this is the beginning of that. These these nidochim are, are it's almost like the Rabbanu Shalom has given us this test case, and we're failing it, Rabbi Yaakov said. And that was such an incredibly, I guess, courageous statement that I guess only a Godel could say, is that, yeah, okay, it isn't just this, oh, we've got this outpouring of the Iron Curtain, and these people are coming, and let's, let's help them. Rabbi Yaakov said the Rabbanu Shalom is giving us He's showing us this is what you have to do. This is this is Pamoine Mashiach, and what we're doing here is falling flat on our face and not servicing them. No, but right, and 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 just to pick up on that, but what happened next was even more astonishing because after giving this rousing speech and really challenging them, and and, and more than challenging, but coming down very very sharply on on anyone who wouldn't take part in the community-wide effort that, that Rabbi Yaakov was galvanizing here, and, and talking about how that we will all jointly have nothing to do with someone who refuses to, you know, take, uh, you know, these, these Russian Jewish uh, immigrant kids into, the, into their school. I mean, a very, very uh, sharp statement. But then he didn't suffice with that. 
you, you can go to meetings and conventions and, and have someone get up and give a very, very rousing emotional speech. And there, and there it remains. And I, I've been at such committee meetings, you know, there's the endless committee meetings that you have in the Jewish world. And then nothing comes of it. Six months later, it's kaloha as if it never happened. This wasn't the case here. And if I could just read one passage. Say, so at this point, after his, 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 his acerbic words, with the meeting apparently over and seemingly a major success, some of the principals got up and prepared to leave. Rabbi Yaakov said to them, where are you all going? He insisted no one leave until he went around the room and every principal had written down his school's name and address and a written commitment to take in a Baragola class. That's leadership. That's godless. And what he was able to force them to do, Eitan, was every one of those schools, I think it was 14 different schools, each one became a satellite location for Baragola. And uh, he made sure that there would be someone who would to make sure that 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 would happen. I mean, it's incredible because can you imagine a school existing in 14 different locations, but every one of those principles have to take a chryas that the institution would work. And it's almost a nest that it actually was able to be matzliach. I know many people who have taught in that system, and I, I wasn't aware how instrumental Rabbi Yaakov was. But again, this shevet be Israel. This shevet be Israel that uh, you know as as a uh, a descendant of a, of of half of you know fifty percent Russian, uh, I recognize that I understand it and I think it's a uh, it really goes to show a lot of uh, that side of Rabbi Yaakov that is so great. You know, and I'll just uh, one more point just on that note. Uh, just really a, a final elaboration on your observation here is. That this chapter is a perfect example of the kind of counter narrative uh, that that uh, the book really uh, aims to provide. You know, here you have the ultimate avuncular personality, and yet we've given readers a more, much more balanced, and I would say mature understanding of what it means to be at a Gadol Israel. Right, Eitan. Look, I, I think that you know, Rav Yaakov is a wonderful piece uh, to expand from. But I think in general, we talk about this is really an, uh, maybe the avla that Rav Yaakov's son was picking up on oh, and, and others, that our sense of the Gadol story is always that hagiographic uh, roses and shining. And without really capturing completely the, the era and what was really going on constantly. I'm making a slightly different point here. This book is nothing at all like making of a Godel. He's talking about whether you show, you know, a, a Godel in, in, in his fullness, uh, you know, the struggles, what he was like in his youth, et cetera, et cetera. That's not where I'm going here. I'm talking about the idea of the giving equal weight to the Gvura and the Chesed within, within an Adam Godel. Right, right, but, but I think it's part of the same phenomenon that it's very difficult unless it's couched so uh, carefully uh, for us to sort of like digest the stories, they all seem to become, you know, almost bubblegum like. And I think that's part of what your corrective is about. And I think Rav Nelson, you know, would, would, would have appreciated it. I was actually drawn first to Rav, the, your essay on Rav Heinemann and the Star K. 
I was a Talmud of Revitamin. Uh, you know, with Rabbi Yaakov, I would say I had the schus of being with him and seeing him and being in the car with him and, and knowing him and just, you know, in a very, uh, from afar, Revitamin was my Rebbe. And I still, uh, I have so many wonderful memories of, of him and Sheer and having personal conversations with him on many, many different things. But I, I really appreciated uh, how you were able to pierce a lot of Rav Heinemann's, I guess he has a certain a, a shell of modesty and be able to bring out what sort of great person he is and how important he was in this Kashrus revolution that has taken place and how it was fueled not just by his great scientific curiosity, but fueled so much by his midos, the midos of uh, his, his modesty and how uh, he... Yes, and how he refused, how as, you know, we're so used to, especially if we know a little bit about the history of cautious in America, about how much of it was about making the money, how much of it was about the, the corruption that pervaded it from top to bottom. Yes, and, and, and it's, it's, it's outstanding. And I, I'll say it on record, you don't have to, that even Rabbonim that were tremendous had this other little part of themselves where they had the kashras part that you sort of wanted to look away from. And you can see it reflected in many of the old Torah journals where you see how the Ashkafas were, were all promoted there. And then they would have this other side of them where they would you know, converse just like in, in, in the Ruach of great Gedolim. But we all knew, ah, this is where they got their pranosa from, by this hashkocha, this kashras, by this agency that would pay them. And here you have Rav Heinemann really, like, really turning that completely on its head. That was the impetus, the, the, the initial impetus, as, as, the, as, as my essay points out, for the creation of what eventually, you know, became Star K, was the, the fact that, you know, that you had, that, that kashras was, was being presided over in Baltimore by a, a group of this, this, uh, this very sort of rabbinum that you're talking about, people who, you know, who were products of, uh, of Europe's great yeshivas and who were, you know, uh, outstanding coming oftentimes. And yet it was this sort of bifurcation. There was this uh, double life being led, you know, uh, on their part. Understandable misyonos, understandable misyonos. First of all, there were two things, and you can see this from some of the early a swarm written in the 20th century that that they were hardly paid anything these rabbonim that their shuls barely paid them and this was considered the neches was almost like you'll be the rav and you'll get these hashkochas and that is the way things are going to work for you not to mix sketches here but again you know perhaps we'll we'll, we'll yet get to talk about Ritzvier Skrzynski but I point out there that he made a, a, a total of four hundred dollars a year and yes. at least I don't know what that meant in 1912 standards or whatever. But he was forced because of that to travel each year out to California to, you know, for to to supervise wine production. Right. It, it was it was a, not even a subsistence salary. Yeah. The Rav of Newark, Rabbi Yaakov Mendelssohn, the Rebbe of my Rebbe, Rabbi Dali Schwartz, was a, a Talmud Chochem Motsum. Uh, and he also was, unfortunately, you know, he, these were things that he, he was he was an to his shul. But it was only through these hashkochas. I, I think there's another element here that Rav Heinemann signals the end of. And that is 
the sense that American Yiddishkeit, eh, you know what I'm saying? It's almost like a dismissiveness about, yeah, oh, those Americans, oh, you know, we're lucky that they come to show on Shabbos, we're lucky they're not driving, we're lucky that they're sending their kids to day school. What happens at that period, Rav Heinemann's the lightning rod that makes it happen, but what happens is that they that those American kids started to grow up. And they started to mature to the point that they weren't just going to say, well, this is America, and therefore the standards are this way. It's actually going to be just as exacting as the way we're going to be medayik and etzais and etzais. And that's what, what occurs with Rav Heinemann, who happens to have the wherewithal, the, as you said, the almost mischievous curiosity towards everything and building it from the ground up. If I may, I, I would say that, you know, what you're talking about here in terms of this attitude, this uh, really a, a kind of condescending attitude that some had, that more learned people had towards, you know, American uh, uh, from jury as a whole. It's kind of the, it's an analog, uh, a religious analog to uh, uh, George W. Bush's famous line, you know, about the black community and talking about how, you know, liberal policies had fostered what he called the soft bigotry of low of low expectations, you know, uh, you know, the blacks, they're not really capable of more, you know, academically and otherwise and so on. You do people no favors and communities no favors when you when you expect so little of them and 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 therefore, you know, baby them and, and lower lower standards and expectations. And that's really what refinement sought to do. It's reflected in, in many ways. I mean, I'm very close with many of the people who work in the Star K. My good friend Svi Holland, who is quoted quite often in your in your article, he was a Rosh in Phoenix. In other words, yes, you take someone from the Chayv Shemes Medrash, you put him into Kashras, you have this incredible mix of daikonus, lumdus, understanding. And again, you you also have, which I think is unique, and maybe without comparing Kashras agencies, Rav Heinemann, it's his, his Pashtus of the Moshe. You know, you have his essence sort of like flowing through there. And even though, and and I'm very close with Svi Holland, I'm close with Svi Rosen. These are all different personalities, but they all have Rav Heinemann's uh, vision, which here's the point, Eitan. It doesn't squash them. It doesn't necessarily turn them into a a box-like figure. Everyone does what's great for his kayak. Each of these people that you're mentioning are quite the personality in their own right. These are no uh, uh, automatons. These are not fellows who are just yes men. They're lively, lively minds and personalities. And yet, as you say, it's unmistakable that that Ramesh's Heinemann, that is, ethos, really hovers above and guides uh, everyone. He's the opposite of being imperious. He's the opposite of imperious. He, in a way, and I knew this as my Rebbe, his interest in, in small things, his interest in things everywhere, really shows that he. it isn't about, this, I'm creating this in my image. And it's really, oh, again, I was in, in many ways in tears reading it and so proud of the fact that I had the schuss of being a student of his. And actually, even after my days, and we're talking about a long, long time ago, I still have him on my phone. And when I was involved in Katras in a much bigger way, uh, very difficult questions, 
uh, he answered on the first ring. And, you know, his physical involvement, uh, whether it was what he did in Russia, uh, going there and uh, showing them exactly how to do the shechita. Uh, I love the fact that, you know, his white shirt did not have a uh, a blemish of any uh, chicken blood or anything on him. Fastidious to a fault, yes. But that fastidiousness was not just was not something obsessive. It was really, uh, ju- again, just another reflection of a certain personality of of Erlichkeit, of, of someone being as yosher and as honest as the day is long. I mean, that's really what he is. One element that I thought was a Kobri framing device was the, and you come back to it, is that the essay starts with the, a, a discussion that Rav Heinemann had with the Satmarov about building a mikvah. It went over me, and you hopped on it, uh, what happened was, he says, what's the best way to make a mikveh? He said, the best way is not to make it based on the Shulchan Aruch. If you need to look in Shulchan Aruch, it's already a problem. Which meant that Rabbi Heidemann's look was, the Shulchan Aruch is giving you, is it kosher, is it bustle? In, in many ways, the bidyevid is what's there, and then you, you work from there. Shulchan Aruch is... If we can say so, it's almost a crisis resource. It's something. It's 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 where you turn when problems crop up, and problems crop up when you try to nickel and dime, and when you try to clever by half because you want to save money or make more money or whatever or, or, or what it, whatever the case may be. Often the owners of the factories give you little choice in that matter, whether it's in terms of how often they're going to allow the mashkiach and cool as you have to be so mechon. Rav Heinemann doesn't agree to being faced with choices. He doesn't do well with ultimatums. And, and again, that, that's again part of the Ehrlichkeit. When, when you have that kind of Ehrlichkeit, it promotes a, an, indep- an independence um, where, where he says, um, you know, I'm doing for the Abishta and, um, you know, I can just walk away. I love the story about the Hashkocha uh, that he was giving to an uh, outfit that was selling Kol Yisrael milk at decidedly uh, cheaper prices than the competitors. And I mentioned this to you off pod, how laughable it was. The owner of one of the other dairies came to Reinemann or, or called him and told him that what you're doing is you you are putting in danger this coil that I'm supporting because it's with these profits that I make that these 30 young alike are able to enhance Klaugistrol's uh, Torah brilliance. And Reinemann said, look, he said, just, you're going to have to find someone somewhere else to be Mepharnas and don't put that on me. My achrayas is to the consumer. We want people to keep kosher. What's allowing people to keep kosher is not with price gouging. It's getting everything exactly the way it should be. Such a telling observation, because we're not going to range far afield here now into social commentary on today's from community. But when you look around, some of the not such great stuff that goes on when you, when you look at it you, and you look at the fine print on the ads, et cetera, you see, well, it's to, it's, it's to benefit such and such sucker or such and such important cause. And basically what Rav Heinemann was saying with this in, in, the, with, in this anecdote was, don't tell me about your causes. I want to know, is what you're doing okay? Is what you're doing good for the Jews? And if it isn't, then all the good causes in the world that it's going to benefit shouldn't make the difference. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a very relevant little anecdote for today's world. 
going from, again, I, like I said, I zeroed in first with the people that I had a connection to, Rav Yaakov, Rav Heinemann, and Rav David Wifshitz. And I was very happy that uh, someone who was so important to Ritz and Yeshiva Saritzko Khanan has a prominent place in Eitan Kobri's book. I'm not sure that anyone has ever written about Rav David. I mean, it, it, which is astonishing, really, when you think about it. Someone who was so important in the lives of so many people for so many decades. And I don't know that, that in the English language, or in any other language for that matter, he's ever been written about. So, yeah. And then once again, Eitan, you know, I, I always appreciate how you do things, not just the actual content. And here you went to Reb David's Talmidim, the one who is extremely prominent today, uh, Ramesha Weinberg. But I, I always appreciate, Eitan, the method of how you get this entry into this vista, as you say. And here you use Ramesha Weinberger, who, uh, of course, uh, is, 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 is a rov that uh, is really reimagining uh, and probably recreating what it means to have a chassidu shekehila. And he talks about the, the great influence that Rav David Lipschitz had on him. Uh, even before I knew who Weinberger was, I knew many, many students of Rav David. And I had this chus to be with Rav David for weeks and weeks at a time uh, in his sojourn in Miami. And just like Rav Yaakov, uh, Rav David and Rav Yaakov both despite their uh, probably wonderful accommodations that were afforded to them in the Miami hotels uh, that they were staying at, they came to the yeshiva every day. And I have to tell you, the yeshiva that they came to was in an office building. It was on the second floor. Uh, it was not, you know, a beautiful smedrish. It took two or three rooms, and it was sort of retrofitted uh, to be a smedrish. That was our yeshiva. I have to tell you that the, the bottom floor was a movie theater. It was the Roosevelt Theater. And, you know, they, they would come to this building, go up to the second floor, an office building, and go to the end of the hall. And that's where uh, the Talmudic uh, University. Of- and this is where these Gedele Yisrael came, including, by the way, Rav Shmuel Birnbaum, uh, Rav Hutner, and others that I was zochet to see in the case of Ismedrish. I'll call upon him. The point of this is that Rav David didn't just come and say, hi, I'm Rav David Lipschitz, and can I have a cup of coffee? He jumped into the yeshiva. There was a seder going on. He walked over like he was the Shavu Meshiv to see, what are you talking and learning about? How did you understand this? I was looking at the Shita Mikubetzis and Baba Kama, and Rav David came over and said, okay, he was very happy I could speak to him in Yiddish, and we spoke. And then he was my Rebbe. I went over to him, we talked and learning. He explained how he would have understood it Rab David was, again, most Rosh Hashivas, I'm on vacation. I'm here for the warmth of Miami. No, he spent his morning Seder in the yeshiva talking and learning. And it was really the most kishmak I had in talking and learning probably in my whole life. Because a lot of times it's all about, let me see what you can do. Talk and learning in order to sort of like, yeah, do you know that? Right? With Rab David, there was such a... Jousting, a, jousting. Yes. It was a desire to hear. It was a desire to, to look at something. I remember showing him the Sarim, and we were going back and forth about it. And then he would say, no, you have to read it like this or, or like that. And therefore, I was very, very happy that Rabdavid is there. And 
since my interaction with Reb David, I've heard from so many, and I never learned in YU, but I learned, but I heard from so many of his Talmudim how important he was in their lives, how he was the spiritual figure that guided them. And I was also impressed, although you quote Rev Weinberger there, to deal with the elephant in the room, which is you had Rev Soloveitchik and you had Rev David, and clearly there was a difference between which Talmud would go where. There was the intellectual uh, heights that Rav uh, Soloveitchik would take you to. There was also, uh, laced with those intellectual heights or intertwined with them, was the strictures and almost uh, anger that sometimes you thought was fueling uh, the Rav because the Rav was energy and was uh, like a tiger. And then you had Rav David, who was Kulo Ava, who gave people such a geschmack it was such an idud. It was a, a tremendous contrast in styles. And, and you really bring out from what you describe him, his modesty. And what I was surprised was his, how he, you felt that uh, from Weinberg and others, that he was sort of like, uh, he, he had modeled himself after Rav Shimon Shkup. Very much so. And I can't just resist just telling you that Rav Shimon himself almost became Rosh Hashiva in Rebiz Golchonet, right? He spent perhaps, uh, he spent quite a bit of time, a number, a number of months, maybe a year. And Revel wanted him as Rosh Hashiva. Uh, and he felt he had to go back to his Talmudim. And it's interesting that although Rav Shimon didn't become the Rosh Hashiva, one of his Talmudim became one of the Rosh Hashiva and was still able to put that imprint there. By the way, Rav Shimon, Rav Sh- I, I, I recently learned that Rav Shimon had also made inquiries uh, apparently, I don't know exactly what this point was and whether it was during the same Tekuf as, as uh, Yitzchel Hanan, but I know he made inquiries even of Eitz Chaim in Yerushalayim, whether he could, uh, you know, uh, secure a position there. So Shimon at various points was looking looking to get out. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, interesting, though. I think I think when, when when he realized what was happening in Europe, I think he realized that he that he had to go back for, for them. The surprise of the book, and I'm not sure if this is the way it was at Mishpacha, was a picture of a Rebetzin Rishel Cutler. It was the picture in the original Mishpacha article as well? I'm sure it was not because of their policy, which I have no comment on uh, regarding <laughs> pictures of women. But I will say this, for Jewish publishing and for, for volumes about Gedele Israel in particular, th- th- this is in, in no, no sense trailblazing. Art scroll biographies of Gedalim have pictures galore of, of women. Uh, you pick up any 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 major biography, Ramesha Feinstein, uh, what, what you know, what have you, and cer- certainly of you know Rebetzin Kanievsky. Hundred percent, I agree. But it's more than the picture. It's more than the picture. I was just sort of needling you a little bit for, because of our mishpocha connection. But she's the woman uh, among these eighteen biographical sketches. She's the one woman. And I think, you know, it, 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 she is, an, I didn't know the, the greatness of this person, that not only the, the way you are able to talk about the vicissitudes and difficulties of her life, but how she, in, in many ways, embodied and is really the, the template for what we now know as, Amer- as North America's strongest Torah community, which is Lakewood. Uh, the way you describe her care, the way you describe her concern of, of what was going on in the community and supporting the yeshiva is really in many ways a microcosm of what we are seeing today 
whether it's uh, in Lakewood, Tom's River, Jackson, that whole community, that Torah community, she embodied those elements to the greatest degree. And I, I thought it was uh, fascinating. She laid the foundations. That, that, one, that one great lady laid the foundations, um, of course, along with her great husband and many, many others. But, it, you know, yes, it's, it will surely come as a great surprise to readers just to uh, how central and, and indispensable a role she, she played in the creation of what, is, as you say, is America's leading, leading Torah community. Yeah. Now, now, in that second floor base medrash uh, on top of the movie theater, I also was Zoha to meet Rav Schneer a number of times. And once again, you know, I, I've heard, I heard so much about Rav Aaron, and, and we know what Rav Aaron was, as you said, the Saraf. Rav Schneer was such an edelah, sweet person, was so approachable. By the way, there is material, there is material on Rav Schneer, although there isn't a piece, an entire piece dedicated to him in this volume. But of course, besides mentions of him, I assume, in, the, in my piece on Rav Aaron in the volume, there is also an appendix at the back, which, you know, I don't think we're going to get to talk about today, which is fascinating in its own right. The one with uh, William Helmreich and, and his conversations with a whole series of G'dayli Taira, but he in particular focuses on his interactions with Rav Schneier. Very, very sweet portrayal of Rav Schneier at the very end of the book. And, and Rav Schneier definitely deserves an incredible amount of credit in terms of the expansion of this yeshiva and how it became more than just you know, a, a think tank and a place of B'nai Taira. It became really a, 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 an institution a phenomenal one in terms of all the koyulim and everything that was spread. It was it was the Lakewood brand. But w- what's interesting is that you know she Baruch Hashem was zocha to Arichas Yomim years and years after she lost her husband, and she was just as active, just as involved. I loved the way the grandchildren talked about all the ice cream that she gave out, Bubi Nash, the type of things that make her alive, and really in a way sort of bind her to her, the incredible uh, stories of how she survived. Uh, the story I think I told you off pod that was incredible was how when she was, where was that? Where she was in Kovna, right? She fled with Wayne using a, 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 a fake German passport um, through a... As if a fake marriage certificate, as if she was to, married... To a, to a yeshiva boy who was a German citizen, yes. And she used that to flee and to ultimately... Uh, end up in Japan, but via Moscow. So, in or, and it seems, once again, Japan was always the Eitzah. Yes. Needed to get to the, the, the Japanese consulate. And first of all, it, it's clear that she wasn't just your typical young girl that was raised in a sheltered way. Uh, she spoke a number of languages. Uh, I, I assume she must have attended some sort of gymnasia Able to speak English. The fact that she uh, uh, was able to get her, her way into the Japanese consulate, the way she was able to get the visas that were necessary for for her to travel out of danger, and she was able to get hundreds of people to get their papers that saved their lives, and it was all based on her moxie, her gumption, and and, and her personality. <laughs> A seventeen-year-old girl. I'll read this part that I thought was really fascinating. Upon her return to the room at the Metropole, uh, which she shared with the Panovich daughter, there was a knock on the door. 
It was the Russian soldier that she had encountered at the consulate that normally wouldn't have let her in. But there was something about her that allowed him to let her in and to obtain all those uh, transit visas for those hundreds of people. So this fellow was smitten by her, it would seem like. Well, let me just interject for a moment. It was, you know, as I described it, it was also the fact that she spoke to him in English, which, which put him off balance. I understand. If it was Laurence Olivier, he wouldn't have come back, I don't think. I think it was part of it was that right? she had struck a chord in him. And, and he wanted her to go out on a date to see Moscow sights with him. And as you write here, she was in a quandary that her father had given her words of Musa before boarding that train that he had said, be particularly on guard. It's a dangerous place for women. Don't wear makeup. But she said if she would spurn his invitation, that would endanger her life. And who knows what he would have done uh, to the others that had been there. So it says they walked around Moscow for many hours and back to the metropole. And returning to her room, she discovered that the Pondovicherov's daughter, with whom she was sharing the room, Yes, so incredible, right? And the Ponovicherov's daughter disappeared into the gulag, never to be heard again. She had been spared by 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 being out for all those hours. With That's right, daughter. and by making that impression. So, what you're able to do, I think, over here is to really tease out and then recreate the interview into actually a, a living portrait. Uh, th- th- this is a a godel story with a, a woman who is clearly a gadola. Isha Gadeila. Isha Gadeila. I'm waiting for some more. Let, let's end over here with, you mentioned before, Tzvi Krasinski. I know, Eitan, uh, we've talked about in the past your, your love of, uh, of the history of American Jewry. And despite the fact that you're a, a Bronx boy, you appreciate what's, what was happening, I guess, what, what is it called, the flyover states? You appreciate what was happening out there. Well, let me tell you, Vamel, that the um, commonality of experience between someone growing up in a perhaps in-town boondocks like the Bronx and someone growing up in Omaha, Nebraska, ain't all that far. <laughs> ain't, ain't, the commonality is quite is quite uh, is quite salient. <laughs> could be could be that says a lot about the insularity of these communities. If you weren't in Crown Heights or Borough Park or those areas, the Bronx was sort of like. Uh, <laughs> the Bronx was Kansas. Um, maybe, maybe. I don't know. As a Memphis boy, I have my own sense of who's a real out-of-towner. But I, I'll give you the honorary title if you indeed want it. Of course, I've, I, of course, being from Memphis, I've always heard about the uh, Grzynski. And what I was so impressed with, again, here, how is Ethan Kobe going to write this story? You know, the, the biographical facts are somewhat small. You pick the agents who are trying to promote Rav Krasinski. And it's really, as much as it's about Rav Tzvi Harish, who, who is sort of like a figure beyond, you focus in on a dynamic duo, and, and, a, and a rather unlikely dynamic duo at that. Yes, right. I don't know which one is Adam West and which one is Burt Ward. <laughs> but again, Rabbi Myron Wachschlag and Rabbi Sholem Jacob. These are the two figures that you really are really the center of this piece. But through them, through their efforts to try to recover the voluminous Ksavim of Rav Grzynski, seemingly on every Mitzoya in Torah that you could think of, you're able to at least tell us that 
what this diamond that was there out in the Nebraska plains were there. It was no corn uh, involved there. You're talking there about someone that was considered by many the God of Hadar. Rafinkin used those very words to describe him, yes. And, you know, again, I have one of his svarim, the Lakute Tzvi, which is sort of like notes on Shulchan Aruch, but it seems that this struggle to discover his writings, to bring them out, is will really enhance you know, the Torah world in, in, in amazing ways. So, you know, obviously, part of what you're also praising here is the fact that uh, Sholem Jacob, who it was one of your heroes, <laughs> he's a lawyer, right? He's a, uh, a litigation partner at a, uh, at, a, at a large international law firm called Lock Lord. And in his spare time, so to speak, he edits and um, publishes. But, but again, when we say he edits, what I mean is he goes through the material. He learns the swarm. He learns the sugis that the swarm are talking about. And he has copious, he has his own copious notes, etc. I mean, the, the fellow is a is is a, a tamar chacham of note. Um, and where he finds the time to do this while being a litigation part, a big firm litigation partner, I don't know, but he does. And a lot of this emerges, and, and he publishes, you know, little known manuscripts from from even uh, from from lesser known gedolim um, that most people, I certainly have never right, heard of. Right, and really incredible how. Once again, we go against this bifurcating sense that, oh, if you're a balabas, if you're working, if you've already thrown yourself into law firm, okay, you'll do dafyoyimi, uh, maybe you'll hear a shear on the way. Here you you actually have a portrait of someone who probably knows more than many rabbonim and rishishivas, not only about the history of these rabbonim, but also about the content and quality of the Torah that they're writing. And to boot has an, an absolutely infectious love of Svarim, which is uh, manifest in his own uh, very extensive collection. Right, I can relate to it. I, 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 I enjoyed this quote from him. Of course, it's just something that, that rang a bell with me. He says that uh, he also lends out his Svarim to those writing Svarim or giving Shiurim. I'm, I'm a little bit wary of doing that. There's very little that can't be replaced. Sure, if it's a Shin... From Krakow Oblin, you may not see it again. <laughs> but a safer that's 200 years old is no problem. I've never had a person lose one of my svarim. So, yeah. Now, of course, a shin, of course, is, is would be uh, a shin would be 1540. That would yeah. be a shin. So that is the, uh, that's the, uh, right. It's again, you know, they, they say that uh, one of the great collectors, and obviously much more than just a, a dabbler was, uh, was Yudalei Fishman, who uh, was responsible for what eventually becomes the Moser of Cook Library. And uh, there was once a, a Bocher who was a, a very fine Talmud Chocham already, who had was granted access to Fishman, Maimon's library. And he was astounded by what he saw. And especially he was moved towards a specific Sefer that he had seen quoted but never really had was able to to read the complete uh, folios, and he he got down and he said, you know, I've been working on this for years, waiting to discover the safer. Is there some way you could just let me have it for a nacht? For a nacht, he says, nein, ich los nicht. Rav Maimon said, los nicht. He says, for a nacht, for a nacht. He says, for one night. He says, kukarimdu, take a look. 
they came in from a nacht. That Maimon himself had, had borrowed for one night, and then it found itself uh, in his library. I, I was impressed that uh, Sholm Jacob understands the Avas's farm of others as well, as willing to be gracious enough to lend these rarities. And it, more than that, I think it really tells you how much we don't know. And I think that's part of what you're trying to do. You can't bring Rav Tzviyash completely to life. We don't have uh, the records to do that. But what you're able to do is, is to give us a sense of the limitation of what we know and to recognize that there's so much uh, about uh, Rabbonim G'dayli Yisrael that it, it goes under the radar. And I think that's really maybe one of the themes uh, of the book completely. I guess it's satisfying, Eitan, that not only does the book is going to get mileage and your sense of things maybe will take root, but it's also probably pretty gishmak that you're able to bank on stuff that you already did. You know, In other words, you've done the work already, and, yes. and now the work is able to come back in a double fashion, you know, which, gives, which gives you so much more time for your next uh, adventures. So where is the next role going? Let's, let's perhaps put this to a close with where, where are you looking to next? What's the, what can you reveal on Closer Than Mishpacha? But I, I will say that I am working, actually, I'm really nearing the end of a, a lengthy project uh, of a, a major, a major biography of a major Torah figure uh, who's never been written about in the English language, you know, which will stay under wraps until this uh, is, is uh, you know, unveiled for the reading pleasure of, of, the, of the from uh, reading public. But sometime in the next number of months, we will bring that to light of day. Well, well if, you, if, if you want to send some of the galleys, even the greatest writers could benefit from a little bit of I've already done that. I've, absolutely. I have numerous readers and I haven't seen any in my inbox, though. Touche, <laughs> touche. Okay, we will we will have to write that wrong. Uh, we'll have to make make that up to you. And, and you know what? You don't even have to put me in the acknowledgments pages at all. <laughs> like Rav Heinemann and like uh, Rav David and like the others, without, <laughs> I want to stay under the radar, uh, but to be part of a uh, of a new great project. Uh, especially as it enhances the knowledge of Gedele Yisrael. And I would say the more we understand these people and, and, and in a real way and, and, and understand the, uh, the multifaceted aspects of them, I think the, the easier it is to encourage people to go on their path. The more you are able to bring them to life, the more they can speak and be inspiring. So many of my students when they hear about Gedolim, they turn off because it's just way beyond them. These stories are, I think what you're able to accomplish is also, and we know the whole purpose is really to say, because yes, I see it as happening. And I think your sketches, your vistas, the new lights, I think are going to penetrate into people. And whether they remember the story exactly or perfectly, the sense that this is something 
that they can follow and perhaps emulate, that, of course, is a tremendous cause uh, for Claudius Stroh and for you in particular. Take care, Eitan. We will catch you, hopefully, more frequently. Be well. All the best to you. Great speaking again. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 